Where are God? And where is God in this situation? On the move, why are you not doing what I hoped that you would do? And predictably, the internet went into a bit of a frenzy. And there was uh, atheist publications and bloggers taking to Twitter and proclaiming victory and writing pieces about finally the death of the church now that the most senior Christian figure in the country is saying that he has some doubts. On the Christian side, there was quite a lot of hand-wringing over this kind of figurehead of the church saying that he doesn't have 100% faith 100% of the time, essentially admitting that he's a human. And... Yeah, if you were to see the funeral of the Queen on Monday just gone, and you were to see the Archbishop of Canterbury preaching, this man who quite happily owns the doubts that he has, preaching perhaps the most faith-filled sermon that you could ever hope to hear, boldly proclaiming to four billion people at once, just a shade over the number of downloads we get each week, boldly proclaiming the hope in the resurrection. Here was just one example of doubt and faith going hand in hand together. And today I want to talk about doubt, and particularly how we respond in times where our faith has been wounded. What do we do when life hits some unexpected trouble out of nowhere? We get blindsided and something hits and we feel shaken. What do we happen when we are rocked by bad news that comes? What do we do when maybe just a small number of things all come together and just mount up and suddenly we find ourselves in that place, however we get there, where we're questioning God, where our belief has been shaken and we start to doubt, who is God? Can I trust him? Can I really put my faith in him? And I think that this can sometimes feel like a bit of a taboo subject in church. We can't talk about doubt. We are meant to be people of faith. And so like, just keep that quiet. We just like, keep boldly proclaiming, keep singing the songs, and don't ever really address the fact of the things that we might be feeling internally. But I want us to see today that questioning God is actually a really normal thing. And when we have these moments where we feel shaken like this, they can actually be incredibly vital moments in our formation towards being people of resilient faith that endures to the end. And so I want us to see what it looks like for us to respond well in times like this and what God is doing in us as we go through them. And so I'm calling today's message, what, uh, When Faith Gets Wounded, When Faith Gets Wounded, And we are in part three of our Exodus series, as we said. And so in a little bit, we're going to read a few verses from the end of chapter five. um, And then we'll read a little bit from verse six as well. So you can kind of stick your finger in there if if you've got a a paper Bible with you or you can scroll there or whatever you need to do. We will have the words on the screen in, in due course. But first, I want to build us towards there from where we've got to, a bit of context. And if you are fresh into this, it's so great to have a number of new people here today. Welcome. Lovely to have you amongst us. If you are fresh into this, what you need to know is that the people of God, the the people of Israel, are under brutal slavery in Egypt at the moment. They are facing horrific circumstances, and they do not know what to do. They are totally hopeless. They, They need a savior. They are in a place where they cannot get themselves out of the grip of the the enemy Pharaoh who's got them. And last week we saw how God then dramatically appeared to his people in the form of a burning bush. He came to this man called Moses and started to speak to him from the burning bush, giving him all these promises that I'm going to come and set you free, I'm going to move, I'm going to act on your behalf. The first time Moses has ever met this God and he's speaking promise after promise over him. 
And the way we finish chapter 4 is Moses and then his brother Aaron, who's been added to him, is asked to then go to the, the, the people at large under slavery to proclaim this good news. And so Moses and Aaron, they gather all of the people together. And at this point, you've got to feel a little bit for Moses. Because he's trying to be taken seriously here, of like, I've got some really good news that's significantly, like, I want you to hear it. But his opening line has to be something along the lines of, guys, I've got really, really good news. This bush started talking to me. (laughs) And this bush is God. I imagine it was pretty difficult for him. And it's saying, like, this God, the God of our ancestors, he's, he's speaking all of these promises. He's going to set us free. He's going to crush Pharaoh and lead us out. And just as they were probably thinking, okay, well, Moses has quite clearly lost his mind, he then, to prove that he's not just a complete raving lunatic, he gives them these three signs that God has given him to assure them. So he's got a staff in his hand. He throws it to the floor. It becomes a snake in front of him. He grabs it by the tail, picks it up, staff again puts his hand inside his robe, pulls it out, and it's, it's withering and it's leprous. He puts it back in, pulls it out, completely healed. And then finally gets some water from the river Nile, the Nile that the Egyptians thought was the source of all of their power. So it's kind of the thing that is oppressing them almost, and Moses pours it out on the ground, and for God to then show his authority over it, it turns to blood. And as the people then see these, scene, these scenes and the signs in front of them, as one, they, they start to believe all of these crazy-sounding things that Moses has been saying to them. And we read at the end of chapter 4, they then bow down and worship. They start to think, this God really is real. He's amongst us. He's on the move. Perhaps this God is for us. And undoubtedly, as we get towards the end of chapter 4, we start to see here is an atmosphere of worship, of faith, and expectation, not just with Moses and Aaron, but among the whole people. And as chapter 5 then begins, in this atmosphere of collective faith and trust and belief in God, we then see Moses and Aaron go for the first time to confront Pharaoh face to face. Everyone kind of believing this is the moment, this is going to be the time as they go in. And this is exactly what God had asked them to do. He said, I want you to go in and confront Pharaoh. And God was also incredibly precise in what he wanted the people, uh, Moses and Aaron, to say to Pharaoh when they got there. We can have a look at it just here on the slide, of the, what, it, what it was from chapter 3 that God said to, um, said to Moses and Aaron to say. He said to them, when you get before Pharaoh, say this, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And then as they now enter into Pharaoh's presence for the first time, here is what they actually say when they get in front of him, side by side, just for a bit of comparison. Here's what they say. You might be able to, may or may not be able to see the difference, but they say this, the Lord of the, the God of the Hebrews has now met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Look at that. Bang on. To the letter. This is absolute, total obedience from Moses and Aaron. Did exactly what it was that God had said. And you might think, that's, like, that's not very difficult. They just listen to some words, remember those words, and then say those exact same words in front of, God, in front of Pharaoh. Surely that's not that hard. But here, there's the two nobodies of a hated and despised people coming up in front of Pharaoh 
Pharaoh, who we have seen already, is essentially the definition of absolute power and absolute evil in his territory, his throne room. This man who, in just one little twitch of the hand, could and probably would, from what we know about the Egyptians, just crush them in a moment. There is no place more terrifying for these men. And they go in front of him with this request, which is just laughable. It's essentially, Pharaoh, would you please let all of our people go? And we will give you nothing in return. (laughs) How's that for a negotiation? This is a vast group of people who are providing a tremendous amount of benefit for the Egyptians. They are getting a lot of free labor. They're building whole cities, and it is costing the Egyptians nothing to have them. And Moses says to them, let them go. Let them go forever. It may not seem like that when we first read it, because we say, oh, three days, it said in the text. But that's kind of a bit idiomatic in the ancient Near East, in the same way that we might say, oh, could I just grab you for a second? We're not actually saying, like, oh, could I have a one-second conversation with you? (laughs) We all kind of know that means just a short amount of time. And similar here, three days would be, can these people go and never come back? In Pharaoh's court, to ask this must have been absolutely terrifying. Facing huge pressure. And as they do, they don't dilute the words of God and what he's asked them to do at all. They don't soften the request, and when they get there and it's terrifying, just think, oh, maybe we just ask for half the people instead. (laughs) Be a bit easier. No, in this godless place, when they're under enormous pressure, they don't offer partial obedience. I find this tremendously provocative. How much easier is partial obedience to what it is that God's asking us to do? Particularly when the pressure's on and we're, we're feeling scared. And I was provoked by this even this week. We were out um, on Oxford Road. We were handing out some flyers to students, inviting people to church. Maybe you're here because you got a flyer. Welcome. And I felt a new God was speaking to me in some of those moments and saying to me, oh, why don't you just be, like, the next person you see, why don't you offer to pray for them? Or I knew, like, the next person that stops and has a chat with you, why don't you be, like, more bold than you were before in speaking about Jesus with them? And sometimes I managed to do it. Other times I felt the pressure was on, I was a bit scared, kind of in Pharaoh's court, and I chickened out. And I offered, if you like, kind of in that day, partial obedience. But here with, I heard what God was saying. I knew the prompting. I kind of, I knew God was leading me. But I offered partial obedience. Moses and Aaron, they heard what God said. And then to the letter, they did exactly what he asked. Wouldn't you love to get to this place of just full and fearless obedience to everything that you know God is asking of you? And I can only imagine as they knew the promises of God from chapter 3, they're sounding in their ear of all God said he's going to do, and now they've come before Pharaoh, and they've, they've offered their obedience, and they know God's saying, oh, with a mighty hand, he's going to set us free as a people, and he's going to strike them with his hand. I imagine they're kind of expecting some kind of fireworks to, to happen in this courtroom. But all they get in verse 2 is Pharaoh say, I will not let Israel go. This is not the response they were looking for. 
All of their perhaps imagined hopes of what God might do in this moment of perhaps it's like Pharaoh crying out in repentance and just saying, God, I, I bow before God, or perhaps falling to the floor and just crying under the conviction of God. All of those imagined hopes dashed in a moment as Pharaoh just sits in defiance against their request. And actually, immediately, the situation starts to get so much bleaker for these people. From verses 16 through to 14, Pharaoh gives very detailed demands on the workload that these people are already facing, the brutal, crushing, bitter work that they're under. He increases it. Increases it to a point that is physically impossible to do. This demands you make this many bricks that just could never, ever be done so that every single waking moment is spent trying to make this number of bricks and to, to do this amount of work. But every day they are coming up short, which means that every day they are facing a beating designed to crush these people. And you almost see then, kind of as this decree comes down from Pharaoh, a dawning moment of realization among these people in verse 19. It says, The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble into this atmosphere of faith that they started the chapter with, of kind of collective, we know God is on our side, he's going to work, trouble comes. The power of Pharaoh's hand is still active, coming down on them to crush them. And as their faith meets a setback, I want us to pick up the narrative at verse 20, at the end of chapter 5. We're just going to read a few verses, but I think they teach us so much about what it is to have faith and what it means to to journey through doubts. So we're going to pick up at verse uh, 20, where we're talking about the people who are just coming out from being with Pharaoh. They met with Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. We'll just pause there. Here we see actually two really different responses to when things don't go our way and when we hit setbacks and obstacles. So the people of God, they started so, so well. They started in this atmosphere of faith and belief, and we, we see them worshipping and bowing down. We think they're starting to really get it. They are, their faith seems firm and strong. But then trouble hits. Their faith meets an obstacle. Their life starts to get worse, not better. And this is how they respond. They are out for blood. They turn on Moses and Aaron, and they, the accusations start flying, the blame starts coming. You have made us stink. You have put a sword in their hands to kill us. There's many times in Scripture where we read that when we go through trials, our faith is being tested. And part of the meaning of that word test is to kind of reveal what is already there. So when it talks about our faith being tested, part of what it's saying is it's a revealing of our faith when we go through trials. 
that when it comes to faith, when we hit difficulty, we only know the strength of what our faith looks like when we hit challenge, when we hit, as it says in verse 19, trouble. And the reaction of these people shows us just how fragile their faith really is. God didn't do what they were expecting on their timetable. He didn't work according to their plans, that he wasn't the God that immediately did exactly what they were hoping for or thinking. And so something that looks like faith in one second, one blink of an eye, resentment and anger and fear starts coming out. They turn against Moses, they turn against Aaron, they turn against God. Moses' response, on the other hand, could not be more different. Try and put yourself in his shoes just for a moment. Things almost couldn't be worse now for Moses after this outburst. He's in a country led by a man who wants to kill him and is deeply against him and everything he stands for. He's constantly having to watch his back and wonder, am I going to see it through the next day? And now his own people have turned against him and rejected him in pretty spectacular fashion. Just a moment ago, he was the hero. He was the one that they were looking to. If he is going to deliver us out, we've got so much faith, Moses. We can't wait to see all that God's going to do. And now, in just a moment, he's turned in their eyes perversely into the one that is trying to murder them and kill them. And is kind of Pharaoh's accomplice in all of this. All the while, he's now got his own questions. I thought... God, you promised that you were going to work. I thought you were going to overthrow Pharaoh. And now look at the situation that we find ourselves in. God, what are you doing? Even with his brother Aaron there, just imagine the isolation, the confusion, the rejection that he was feeling. I think perhaps what must have been the most hard for Moses was what was the situation, the immediate context that has led him here. Total obedience. He has done exactly what God has asked him. And where is he? Life has got harder. A lot harder for him. I think this is so important for us to see. I think that there is, that's one of the most common beliefs that as Christians we might, might hold. We perhaps don't speak about it very often, but I think for most of us it's there. It might be buried deep down, but I think it's there. That we believe if I am obedient to God then I have an expectation that my life will get better. Or, whisper it very quietly, if I am obedient to God, I deserve for my life to get better. You know, I've done this for God, now he owes me over here in some way. Now, of course, there is a truth to this. If we are obedient to God, our life will get better because fullness of life is found through being obedient to God, knowing Jesus, drawing near to him, finding fullness in him, And as we are obedient, we draw nearer and closer to that. We will know joy, we will know life, all of those things. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is this belief that life will get better on our terms. That if we are obedient, life will get easier for us. Life will get more comfortable. There'll be less annoyances. There'll be more stuff, perhaps, that our ambitions will start to get fulfilled. Our goals will start to be progressed. That doors will start to open for us. Maybe promotions will be achieved. If I'm obedient, I'll start to see some of the things that I want to see happen. My life will get easier, not harder. 
That is not what God promises. Here we see this distorted view of who God is and how he might work in our life. We see it in the people of God that as soon as they don't get what they want, or they, that God isn't working in their life in the way they want, their faith is demolished and they turn away. We cannot afford to have this fragile faith that these people have. That if we are to have faith that endures, we need to be intentional and conscious about kind of rooting out of our hearts this belief that I will get what I want if I'm obedient to God or that my desires might be fulfilled. We need to see if ever there was a man who was going to get comfort and ease because of his faithfulness and his obedience, it's Moses. He's done exactly what God has asked. And still, trouble followed. He's led into a situation where he finds himself questioning God and his goodness. This is a hard lesson for us to learn. And perhaps for us it feels like it should be different, but even in our obedience, God will lead us into these times. And he does it to deepen our faith and to actually draw us closer to him. Because we see in Moses then, he does not wallow. He doesn't run away. He doesn't even post something angry about God on Facebook. In verse 22, this is how he responds. Then Moses, then Moses turned to the Lord and said. Just pause there. Do you see the difference? It's very easy to miss, but the key difference is right here in the response of the people and the response of Moses. The people hit trouble, and they turned against God. The very best you could say is that then in their response, they started talking about God. The people turn away from God and speak about God. Moses, on the other hand, turns to God turns towards him and starts talking to God in his trouble. Moses turned to the Lord and said. Immediately as he finds himself in crisis, he turns to God and he prays. And he prays this prayer that is raw, it is real, and it is right where his heart is at. And it is full of doubt. Listen to it again. He says to God, for since I came to Pharaoh, excuse me, even before, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses does not hold back in this prayer. He is accusing God of evil. He's asking God, why have you sent me? He's questioning all of the good promises of God, and then he finishes by saying, God, you have not delivered your people at all. He bundles up all of his anger, all of his pain, all of his questions, and he just unloads them upon God. It is a prayer of a faith that has clearly been wounded. But yet, it's also a prayer that shows that his faith still has a heartbeat. We may not think it seems that way when we hear the prayer. Here's a man yelling at God, accusing God. Doesn't sound too much like faith in our estimations. But look at the end of his prayer. He prays the promises of God back to God. 
He's holding God to account. What he's doing here is he said, God, you have said you are going to deliver your people and you have not done this. And when he's doing that, what he's doing is he's expressing a belief. However small that belief might be, it might be the tiniest possible belief, but it's belief nonetheless that God is able to do this and that he still has at least some, there's some chance that maybe he would act. Because if you don't believe at all, if you've got zero faith, what do you do? You don't pray that prayer. You don't turn to God. You turn away from God. You don't offer up that. You just give up. You turn away. But Moses here, he clings to his faith with the little trust that he has, with the little belief that is still there. He doesn't grumble about God, but he turns to him and pours out his heart. In our deepest and darkest moments, in our moments of greatest doubt, when our faith has been wounded, we must choose to turn to God in those moments, to shout at him, to scream at him, to cry if we need to, to question the promises that we think are over us, to tell him how he has let us down, or we think that he's let us down, to tell him our doubts, to ask him, God, where are you in all of this? To bring it to him. I want to be clear, this doesn't mean that we then don't share our doubts with one another and we don't talk about them in church. Church must be a place where we talk about our struggles, we talk about our doubts, where we say to someone, like, this is what I'm struggling about. God hasn't moved in this area and I'm finding it really difficult. Would you help me? Would you, would you pray for me? But the key to seeing the breakthrough when we're facing moments of doubt, we see it here We see it through many, many psalms that are just like it, where the psalmist is just unloading upon God, saying, God, why are you standing far off? Why are you neglecting all of your promises that you have made? Perhaps most famously, God, why have you forsaken me? The key to seeing the breakthrough when we are facing moments of doubt and our faith has been wounded, we've got questions we can't reconcile, is getting ourselves to a place where we are able to take them to God. This is the difference between saying to someone next to us, perhaps, you know, God didn't heal my brother, so I just can't see how he can be good. And instead, turning to God and saying, God, you didn't heal my brother. I thought you were supposed to be good. These moments of trouble that we face that can knock us back, can cause us to question our faith, they are inevitable and they are big moments in our lives, big moments in our faith, and how we respond in them can really count for who we then become. I remember I just finished an intern year um, at a church that I was part of after university, and I was an ambitious guy, uh, perhaps a bit overambitious, definitely overambitious, in the things of of church, and I wanted to work for a church, wanted to lead a church one day perhaps, and, um, and I got offered a job at the end of my intern year, and I thought, this is great, this is my dream, full-time work, doing the students, part of, like, get, getting, in, getting to be part of things for longer, all of those sorts of things. But then a difficult conversation. Shortly before I'm about to start, the job gets taken away. And I find myself then in a place where I've lost my dream job. I can't apply for any graduate jobs because that, that time has sailed. And I can't, I, I've got bills to pay soon and I've got nothing lined up. I don't know what I'm going to do. And it's a time of doubt. It's a time of pain and frustration and questioning, God, what are you doing? This is not part of the plan. 
And it's particularly memorable for me because I remember in that moment, I was consciously at this kind of crossroads. I knew I basically had two options. I remember it vividly, just thinking I could go down this path. I could go down the path of bitterness and anger and blaming God, questioning him, not really turning to him, blaming my leaders. But I also knew there was another path I didn't really want to take. That path was much more attractive. We would have had a, lot of, a great pity party down that path. But I knew there was another path of keeping on turning to God, even in the pain of just coming again and again, of bundling up the pain and the frustration and the hurt and the questions and bringing them to God and just unburdening myself upon him time and time again. And when I look back on it now, I honestly think that was perhaps the, well, one of the most significant moments in my journey of faith, that with this wounded faith, somehow I managed to turn to God. I don't know how, by his grace, he just helped me keep turning to him in that moment. Maybe you find yourself in a similar crossroads today. You think, I could walk away from God, or at least start the process, or start moving away from him in my faith. Maybe you've hit family tragedy, and you just can't see the goodness of God in it. Perhaps you've been praying for months and months and months, God, would you give me a job? Would you give me some income? I'm really struggling. And it just seems like he's silent. It seems like he's not there. Perhaps you've just arrived at university and you thought you were coming in with a pretty solid faith, but the way that people have been responding and the, the questions you've been getting in halls when people learn that you're a Christian has just shaken you. And you're just like, I'm confused. I don't really know where I am. When we are questioning God like we never have before, when we are starting to, we're not sure if we can really put our trust in him, when we don't know if he's going to show up in our troubles, in these moments, when we turn to him, he lays a foundation stone in our life of faith that he can build and build and build upon. And it's into Moses' questions and his doubts that we see God start to speak as he turns to him. He speaks in the first eight verses of chapter 6. We'll get a good idea of reading just three of those verses from verse 6. This is what God says as Moses turns. Say therefore... To the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched hand and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. If you were here last week, you might be thinking, didn't we read that before? Isn't that just chapter 3 all over again? And in many ways, very many ways, that is exactly what is going on. Just as God is just saying exactly what he said before. Almost like nothing has changed. And that is precisely the point. That from Moses' perspective, everything has changed. It seems like God has abandoned him, gone silent, not doing anything. The, the, the work that God has promised that seemed impossible before, it seems even more impossible now. And into all of that, God just speaks. He says, nothing has changed. The promises still 
stand. Everything I said before is still going to happen. You can rely on and you can trust in all that I've said. Your circumstances might have changed, but the promises of God are unshakable. He has spoken, I have spoken, he says, and I will do it. This is relentless speaking of promises from God in this passage. I'm sure you picked it up when I was saying it, but in the three verses, seven times, God says, I will. Listen to the kind of holy confidence that God is trying to communicate to Moses and impart to him. This is not kind of, oh, I sort of, I plan to, or, you know, I will do my best to, or, you know, Pharaoh slips up, then maybe we got a chance. No, this is God saying, I will. In verse 2 of chapter 5, we've already read it, the will of Pharaoh was expressed. He said one time, I will not let my people go. And God here is now allowing the enemy to show his hand. He's allowing the enemy to do his worst. He's allowed his enemy to exert his will upon the situation. And as God's fiercest enemy is standing in direct defiance against him, to Pharaoh's I will, here comes the sevenfold I will roar of the supreme and sovereign God. <laughs> the enemy might be raging in your situation. He might be bringing chaos and sudden pain and things that throw you into confusion and get you questioning, get you maybe even panicking, but make no mistake, he is the one who is in control. He is the one that cannot be resisted by even the greatest force that the evil and enemy might throw against him. He is on the move with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm through it in ways that we cannot see, in ways that are imperceptible to us. He is doing his sovereign work. And he speaks this I will to Moses. And what he's saying is he is going to do it. Alone. He will do it. And this is a reminder, as we looked at last week, he doesn't need Moses for any of this. He doesn't need Moses. He doesn't need Moses' faith. And yet, he still speaks. Because he sees that Moses' heart is troubled. Because he sees that Moses doesn't quite understand. He speaks. God speaks not because he needs to, not because the plan is dependent upon it, but because he wants to draw Moses from his place of doubt into a place of faith. Just as a father's reassuring words would come to a son or a daughter that's just feeling a bit nervous or feeling a bit fearful and unsure, God comforts Moses. He wants him to believe, wants him to see. For Moses' benefit, God speaks here. So that Moses can know that all is going to be okay. He doesn't want Moses confused and fearful on the outside, but he wants to draw him right in. He wants Moses to know he is fully part of all that God is about to accomplish. In our, this is how God responds in our doubts. Eight, the eight verses that begin chapter 6, I have counted them so you don't have to, 17 times God says I to refer to himself. We've already seen the I will seven times. He then goes on to say, well, within it he says, I appeared, I have, I established four times. He says, I am. In our moments of greatest desperation, where we're questioning everything, we need to know God does not push us out 
and push us away, that he looks to draw us closer in. He wants to take us from doubt through to trust. And he speaks, and he speaks himself to us. These four times where he says, I am, he's saying, I am the Lord. He doesn't just want Moses to know what he's going to do. He wants to know him. This is the whole point of the last four chapters. God speaking to Moses again and again, kind of repeating himself. This is God's agenda, appearing to him in a burning bush so that Moses can experience his holy presence, even giving him those signs so that God can, Moses can start to see God at work. None of these things actually move the events of the Exodus on at all. They are all done so that God can draw Moses closer to himself in his doubts. And this is perhaps the most unique thing of these, these things that God says compared to chapter 3. In verse 7, he says... I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This is the first time that we see in Exodus the language of the covenant, really. And it's an idea, this idea of committed relationship, of God being ongoing and, and deeply in relationship with his people. It's an idea we'll get into in a lot of depth as we go through. But we start to see it take shape here, even in the language of this verse. He says, you will be my people. He's saying, you are going to belong to me. I want to draw you so close that you will be mine, my special possession, my, my holy people, my chosen people that will know God's divine care and his protection. And he says, I will be your God. Not only will you belong to me, but I will belong to you. So committed is God to this relationship. So much does he really want his people to know him, to be able to trust him, that he says, I want to belong to you. This is God giving himself to his people. Into wounded faith, this is God's response. Whenever our faith is wavering, this is our confidence, this is our bedrock. God has given us himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. When everything around us is telling us God is not with us and God does not care about our needs and God is not working on my behalf and he's not giving me what I need, we turn and we fix our eyes upon the cross of Jesus Christ and see God has given us himself. This is the place where perfect obedience led to the darkest moment. But impossibly, it was also the place, the darkest place, where all of the promises of God were accomplished, where they all found their yes and amen. At the cross, we see God has heard his cry from his people who are enslaved and imprisoned by the power of sin. At the cross, we see the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God coming to work and act on behalf of his people, coming to overthrow his enemy, coming to disarm the powers of evil and humiliate them and put them to open shame upon the cross that all the world might see they have been condemned. At the cross we see people redeemed from slavery, the captives set free. We see the one who is leading us out and leading us forth into the promised land of God's presence. 
This is where we can take all of our doubts. The cross of Christ. The place where we see that the God of I will is also the God of it is finished. That he is also the God that has done it already. It's not an instant fix. It's not just like one moment, look at the cross. Ah, suddenly, 100% faith, all restored. But the place where we can always turn and continue to look. We see that Moses is still struggling. At the end of chapter 6, he's still questioning. He says, but how will Pharaoh listen? But it's kind of a question from a firmer place of faith. We're seeing the journey and the strengthening of Moses' faith after turning to God in his doubt. And it's the same for us. As we keep turning to Christ, we keep fixing our eyes upon his cross, even when our faith is its most wounded, we will begin to see with eyes of faith, he really is good, he really is supreme and powerful, and he really does keep all of his promises. I'd like to invite the band up. Just as a, a moment to finish, we're going to sing a song. And I'd love to lead us in a place. I know that in this room there must be people in this place of doubt, in this place of struggle. And what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song, and I'd like this to almost be the beginning of your response in this. For all of us, we will find ourselves to some extent in this place where we need to look once again upon the finished work of Jesus and come to him and see him as he is. And this might be almost like the hardest thing for you. You think, this is the last thing I want to do, is look to him, the one I'm struggling to trust. But can I invite you to stand? That if you are in this place of, I'm almost at a crossroads, I don't know which way I need to go. We will sing this song, even with the strange alarm noise. As you sing this song, this can be the beginning of you saying to him, no, I'm, I'm not turning away. I'm turning to you. It hurts. I want you to know my pain, God. I want you to know my confusion. And after we finish this song, I just want to, I'll come back and lead us in a short time of response where we can bring some of our doubts and start to bring some of the things we're struggling with to him and welcome his presence so that we know he really is with us. The, the promise-keeping, faithful God is amongst us. So let's sing this song, and then I'll be back in a moment.